So this talk is called Just Walking. And um, it's actually inspired by my practice period in Burma, where I, some of you have sat with Sayada Ulakana um, in the January retreat that um, happens every year. And I don't know whether he still does it, but the year that I did it in 2002 or 2003, um, he gave three hour plus talks on just walking meditation. So I'm not gonna do that. Um, But what those talks did was really allowed me to sink into the practice in a way that I hadn't felt in the 12 or 13 years that I had been practicing. So I'm hoping that this will also provide some doorway into um, your own relationship to walking practice. And, you know, some people actually like the walking practice a lot. Um, as hard as that is to believe. Somebody said it in the, in, in the hall in the morning. Um, and it's also kind of, sort of clear that there's some collective aversion to it too. Um, I especially noticed the park benches during the walking meditation and there <laughs> seems to be some park bench meditation going on. And even if we're not that aversive to it, there's a relationship to it that can be like a relief from the sitting practice or a respite or, um, uh, or you know, it can be just a subtle feeling that it's a break because um, you don't really feel the benefits all that much, not as much as sitting practice. Um, it's not as interesting because it's a it's such a repetitive, mechanical process. And, you know, I just want to hold the, a slightly larger view that, again, with so many things in our culture, our culture conditions us to prioritize and deprioritize things. And walking is not really held in such high regard in our culture. So this is from the New York Times. How sluggish locomotion is compared with the speed at which the mind absorbs new images and information. The body strains at the, 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 the brain strains at the body's tether, sees for new scenery, new stimulation, and bridles at the slow feet below. Look at that tree with such lovely orange leaves, how pretty it is. A minute later, the same tree the same leaves. (laughs) Walking is like adding with an abacus. It is space travel on a donkey. (laughs) We don't get much support (laughs) for slowing down. This is part of the going upstream. So really to acknowledge that and, and that, you know, no wonder it's a great time to go to the bathroom. No wonder, you know, you get a cup of tea and by the time you do all these activities, gee whiz, there's only 20 minutes left. Too bad for the walking. 
And the opposite can be true too. I loved what Mary Grace was saying in her talk about sort of competing a little bit in the meditation hall. And, um, you know, you, I've been in situations in the walking hall in which, you know, you try to walk the slowest to make sure that you're the, the most perfect yogi. And this is, comes from the autobiography of Ajahn Lee Damodaro, who is a highly realized Thai master in the last century. One night when the moon was bright, I made an agreement with one of the other monks that we'd go without sleep and do sitting and walking meditation. I told my friend, let's see who's better at doing sitting and walking meditation. So we agreed, when I do walking meditation, you would do sitting meditation. When I do sitting, you would do walking. Let's see who can last the longest. When it came to my turn to do walking meditation, my friend went to sit in a hut next to the path. Not too long afterwards, I heard a loud thud coming from inside the hut. Sure enough, there he was, lying on his back with his legs folded up, sticking up in the air. He had been sitting in full lotus, gotten sleepy, and simply fallen backwards and gone to sleep. I was practically dropping off to sleep myself, but I kept on going out of the simple desire to win. I'd hate to be in his place, I thought. But at the same time, I was pleased I had won. All these things serve to teach me a lesson. This is what happens to people who aren't skillful in what they do. I like that story because even in, these, in the developmental course of these, these incredibly realized masters, they went through the same human experience that we all do, the judging and the comparing mind. And it makes our journey into mindfulness so much more real and so much more accessible. I think that Heather read from the Satipatthana Sutta when uh, around the, the foundation the, of the body, the first foundation. And so this is from the Kayagatasati Sutta, which is a sutta that is specifically around mindfulness of the body. Furthermore, when walking, the monastic discerns I am walking. When standing, they discern I am standing. When sitting, they discern I am sitting. When lying down, they discern I am lying down. However the body is disposed, that is how they discern it. And as they remain Thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, any memories and resolves related to the householder life are abandoned, and with their abandoning, their mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. And that is how a monastic develops mindfulness immersed in the body. So for the purposes of this talk, what do you notice about that passage? What I noticed is is that, and I just want to say, the Buddha was very pith. He did not say anything that wasn't worth saying. And so it's worthwhile to pay attention to every detail. And what I noticed about that passage is that he put walking first. It's not second, it's not third, and it's not fourth. 
it's actually the first practice that he mentions. John and I were talking last night about this topic and, the, and sort of out of uh, a collective conversation, the phrase came up, the Buddha was a walker. You know, it's not as if he had a hybrid Prius driving him around to all the places that he was teaching or he had to walk. And he did walk after his awakening. There were seven weeks before he actually started his first teaching. This is the sort of the archetypical story. And one of those weeks, resting in the fruits of his practice and in his awakening, was a full week of walking meditation. He walked for his food every day. That's what the monastics do after 2,600 years. He walked for his shelter every night except during the rains retreat, which is because the weather becomes so bad that the, the monks stay for three months in one place. But otherwise, it was a, um, a transient life and you walked. And he walked to teach all those places that he taught. There was no other mode of, of, of transportation. And when he was walking, I cannot imagine that he would not be practicing, that he would not be fully mindful. And yet we take this all for granted. We take this ability to move through the world, we take this, this ability to ambulate. So we hardly give it a second thought because we're so invested in the destination. We take so much of our life for granted and this is the template of our mindfulness practice. To reveal that which is hidden, that which the Buddha said was so precious that 24 hours with mindfulness is more precious than living 100 years without it. Each moment is precious. Each moment of, of your breath, which we also don't give a second thought to usually until there's some limitation or, or condition or, or injury. And then we realize how precious the breath is, our ability to move our bodies. Then we begin to realize what a rare gift that we've been given. So as Heather described, that walking meditation is interwoven into the first foundation around the body, first foundation of mindfulness. What is this body and what is this body that ambulates? Because, you know, the human foot is extraordinarily complex. Each foot has 26 bones. And so in your two feet, you have a quarter of all the bones in your body. You have 33 joints, 107 ligaments, and 19, 20, something like that, muscles. To say nothing of the blood vessels and the nerves. How aware are we of that complexity on these two little pads that we just, you know, move through life with? 
the average person takes about eight to 10,000 steps a day, which if you abstractly count it, can uh, be accumulated into about 1,600 miles a year. So I was you know, telling my mom, who's 95, that uh, she's walked over 150,000 miles in her life. And she said to me, no wonder I'm so tired. <laughs> but, how, but how much are we aware of all those moments Because as we have said over and over again in our different ways, in our different voices, in our different stories, our conditioned unconscious response is to push away things we don't like and want more of things that we do like. And this back and forth is the manipulation of what is really calling to be lived. The life that is calling us to be lived, we're actually changing this walking should be more interesting. I really need to do X, Y, Z instead of this walking period. That is when our thought becomes reality. And when I say thought becomes reality, it's not the content of the thought that becomes reality. I'm not talking about magical thinking in, in, the, in the sense that if I am thinking about a car, I'm going to get it. I'm thinking, I'm talking about that the activity of thinking becomes your reality instead of your direct experience. Thich Nhat Hanh writes, if we were really engaged in mindfulness while walking, then we would consider each act of each step that we take as infinite wonder and a joy would open in our hearts like a flower, enabling us to enter the world of reality. In such moments, existence is a miraculous and mysterious reality. People usually consider walking on water or in thin air a miracle, but I think the real miracle is not to walk on either water or thin air, but to walk on earth. We are engaged in a miracle we don't even recognize. Again, revealing that which we normally take for granted. Noticing the details of, 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 of that you actually put about 1.5 times your body weight with each step. That there's, that there's tremendous pressure and then lightness. So some supports for your walking practice before I go any further. You know, sometimes there's a, there's a tendency to want to find your walking spot, the place that feels, you know, that, that feels the best, or can I get there before somebody else does? And there is a support when you walk in community as opposed to alone. You know, it's sort of like a, uh, if you've ever been cycling, that you draft in the practice of someone else and that we're all drafting in, in our collective practice together. 
I was doing a three-week retreat at the Forest Refuge with with uh, one of my closest Dharma friends, and um, and so at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, it's there is no schedule. You practice, you sit, walk. There's the the standard meal times, and you fall into um, a rhythm of practice that is that emerges from. Um, your own conditions, the conditions of your body at the time, the conditions of of your concentration and um, and so my friend and I sort of wove in and out of the hall, and one day we ended up in the same walking hall <coughs> alone, and this was like two weeks into the three-week period that I was. So we were both quite still. And something happened in that room. I don't know whether it was a folle de, which is the clinical term for going crazy at the same time. <laughs> but that experience was um, so profound in the sense that many, so, there are times in your sitting practice in which the world falls away, that it's just sensations that are that are that are uh, revealing itself in this in this sort of sky-like awareness. And to have that with someone that you are already connected to, even though that's not the thought process that was going on, and in in that walking period. I felt this being no longer my friend, but as in some of the guided meditations, you know, you see this person as your child, as your mother, as your enemy, as your teacher, as all beings. And it took me into a, into a place that was beyond space and time. And the reason that I say that I, that I don't know if it was a follow de is when we checked in after the retreat, they had such a same experience. And we are both married to different people. And the intimacy that we felt in that room, it was like, I don't know if we can share this. <laughs> it was that connected. We can support each other in, in using walking as a vehicle to explore beyond what we think we are, who we think we are. I had the privilege and the honor of having my father before he passed away at one of my teachings. It was the only teaching that he, was ma- he managed to get to. He was already losing his hearing. This was about 12 years ago in the community hall. And I was doing a day long, it was I think a beginning class and he couldn't hear that well and so um, I gave the walking instructions and he came up to me at the, at, when we broke for the walking and he said to me, you know Larry, I can't hear that well. Can you teach me how to walk? And I mean it was a honor to be able to do that, but what he taught me in that moment was pure beginner's mind. Mm 
I think he was like 86 or something like that at the time. And it was the willingness to just be totally open to the experience, even though we have been, he's been conditioned by 86 years of walking and thinking that you know, he knew what walking was. We don't know what's going to happen. So the Buddha spoke of five benefits of walking meditation in the Anguttara Nikaya. It develops physical endurance. It improves wise effort, which is part of the Eightfold Path. It's good for the overall health of the body. It's good, especially after to the digestion of a meal. So in, in Burma, um, the invitation is to always walk 50 paces after you eat, just to um, help the digestion. And the concentration won from walking meditation lasts a long time. And the underlying benefit that underlies all those benefits is that they support moments of freedom. So I want to take the walking practice directly into the teachings and just walk through the entire Eightfold Path, which is the path to freedom. And instead of the traditional order starting with wise intention and wise understanding, I'm going to actually start with the meditation factors since this is our purpose together. And so I start with wise effort, partially because it's been coming up in a lot of the practice discussions. What is, what is wise effort? Because effort is quite different than striving. And this is the edge that, that some people were discussing in, in the meetings that I was having. And so just, you know, this is my own equation. This is not in the Abhidharma, but this is my own equation of, of factors that, that help me, that, that wise effort is really having an intention and putting energy around it to allow that intention to be manifested. Where the difference for me between wise effort and striving comes is it's the same equation. There's an intention in striving there's energy in striving, and there's a third component, and we call that attachment. We get attached to the intention. We want that outcome. And we know from the Second Noble Truth that all attachment and clinging, even to aspects of freedom, even to wholesome aspects, create suffering. So just to go backwards a little bit, you know, that, that experience sometimes of drowsiness and torpor that we have. For me, that's having the intention, but no energy. And then to go back a little bit further, when there's no intention, then, then I know that I'm deluded. That there's, an, there's a state of ignorance that's happening. So, 
effort with walking really allows us to balance our practice so that when there's some sloth and torpor, when there's some drowsiness, often what helps is to uh, create some energy in the walking. You may want to increase your walking pace. Likewise, when there's a lot of agitation, whether it's in the mind and heart or whether it's in the body, and sometimes they're very related, right? The, the restlessness of the mind can show up in the restlessness of the body. Use the walking to create space. So I know that the traditional invitations around walking is to take a, a length of 19 to 20 paces and just go back, turn and go back. But in a state of restlessness, what I often suggest is to expand that length. Go all the way down to the highway and back. Create that space in your physical experience and see what comes into the sitting practice when you return. And these are all skillful means, right? They're all upaya. They're all, um, you, it, it is an experimental laboratory that you bring into the meditation hall and it's called your practice. Invite yourself to recalibrate your relationship to walking. Because even though, even those of you who really like walking, for example, how many of you are willing to do walking practice for a period of 24 hours? And then, you know, what's the internal response? Is it, oh my God, that's not on the schedule. It may seem, um, I think this question came up in, in one of the sessions too, it may seem mundane and boring. What do we do when, when those kinds of experiences, that repetitive, mechanical, you know, I don't think I'm getting anywhere thought comes up. This is what Andy Warhol writes about repetitive, mechanical, Actions and you know Andy Warhol is the artist that, that does the multiple Campbell soup cans or the Jackie O portraits or he's the master of repetition. I've been quoted a lot as saying I like boring things, but that doesn't mean that I'm bored by them. Because the more you look at the exact same thing, the more the meaning goes away, and the better and the emptier you feel. See what happens when you, when you immerse yourself in the walking practice. And not only does the destination fall away, but see if it's possible if the path falls away. What is that like? That you're just with, you know, as you sit and you have all of these sensations that are coming in the sky of awareness. What is that like in movement? And what is it like when you practice 
and the path falls away. Effort leading to mindfulness, wise mindfulness, wise mindfulness supports wisdom, especially while walking. January 17, 2010, San Francisco. On the day of the collision last month, visibility was good. The sidewalk was not under repair, and as she walked, Tiffany Briggs, 25, was talking to her grandmother on the cell phone, lost in conversation. Very lost. I ran into a truck, Miss Briggs said. It was parked in the driveway. How often are we not paying attention when we're doing this basic, basic activity? In London, there are 68,000 texting accidents a year. And they've actually um, wrapped light lampposts at certain intersections. <laughs> it's really important to be aware when you're walking. Lifting, moving, placing, touching, maybe watching where you're going, lifting, moving, placing. Some of the aspects can be around counting, that Donald had introduced in the, in the breath meditation. You can also count your steps if you're feeling that fragmented or distracted. And the invitation is to use it skillfully so that you don't depend on any of these techniques. That you, that you feel the walking from the inside out. And notice particularly the transitions, the turn, just like the pause between the in-breath and the out-breath. Notice all of the sensations of the turn, because it's in the transitions of our life that we often get lost, or that we often don't want to pay attention to on purpose, that we actually want to be at the destination of the new apartment or home or the new job that we're trying to get or the new relationship that we're in. And what happens when we reach that final transition? That we don't want to be with the moments that are being revealed in, for example, someone who's passing away or when we are passing away. This practice is relevant in all aspects of our life. It's a template for how, what, of how we approach our life. And again, as some of you said, walking leads to greater concentration, wise concentration. And, and walking is one of the fundamental doorways into what we have begun to introduce as the continuity of our practice. Continuity practice from moment to moment that the meditation is not just sitting and walking. It's how you get up in order to go to your walking. It's touching the door before you push it. It's how you put your clothes on in the morning or or the pressure of, of the toothbrush against your gums and your teeth. 
Walking is the invitation to allow mindfulness to be with us in each of our activities. Concentration unifies the energies of our mind from, you know, when we're usually living in the world, we're fragmented. The distractions are, are innumerable, pulling our attention in different directions. And concentration allows all of that unification to be centered around mindfulness. And with that, with that energy behind your mindfulness, insight has the possibility of arising. And insight into what? Insight into what will actually lead to less suffering in our lives. So moving from the meditation factors into wise speech, And in this case, as a, as a means of communicating or being in relationship, it's not so much between ourselves, but I want to suggest that walking is a way of communicating and developing a relationship with the world. That um, one of the beautiful things that I learned when, when I was practicing in Thailand is, is that before a temple is built, the community, the monastic community and the lay community, do walking meditation on the land. And the, um, the belief is, is that it both purifies the land and purifies the people practicing. That there's a purification happens when there's a relationship with the land. And this feels incredibly indigenous to me in terms of a deep rooted earth practice. That, that in a sense, whether we're asking for permission or de simply just developing a relationship and awareness of how we're going to use the land. Because in the West, one of the conventional uses of land or relationships with land that we have is to own it. And can we really own land? Whether we do or not, that's part of the American dream, supposedly. What is your relationship with this earth beyond that particular conditioning? Crazy Horse writes, one does not sell the earth upon which people walk. And a lot of these earth-based practices, like Qigong, in which you sink into the physicality of the earth, you feel the heat of, of your legs. And in the foundations of mindfulness that, that Heather um, uh, taught last night, there are the four elements. One of the practices is to break down your walking into the fire that is the energy in the muscles, the heat, the vibration, the air that's the movement of, of the leg, 
the earth, that touching and the groundedness that you feel, the solidity that you feel with each step. The water, the changing nature of the pressure and the weight reflecting the fluidity in life. Re-experiencing our relationship to land by breaking it into its most basic components because we don't own land. We don't work land. We don't use land and we don't even exploit land. We are land. We do not walk on the land. We are earth that walks. Can you feel that interdependence with life. That is, that is the invitation of the walking meditation. To feel the organicity of your being with the organicity of the earth around us. We begin to see that these ideas of our small self are really different from this expansiveness that we can experience, that we call life. <coughs> when the, uh, His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama, um, approaches the Mahastupa at Bodh Gaya, I was privileged to witness it um, one year, he takes three steps and does a full body prostration on the earth three steps, full body prostration. It's as if he's embracing the world. It's as if he's holding the entire planet. So I just invite you to, to try it, even if there are hesitations with, with this practice of the four elements. Mildred Norman Ryder writes, few find inner peace, but this is not because they try and fail. It is because they do not try. So the invitation is just to try it and see what it's like in your own practice. Ajahn Buddha Dasa um, was once asked, he's another of these Thai forest uh, meditation masters. He was once asked about the, the, the peculiar Western conditioning around low self-esteem and self-hatred and judgment and these inner wounds that, that were often, that often just come up. You know, it says that when you get on a cushion, your whole life comes up. And he says, First, the whole of their spiritual practice should be enveloped in the principles of metta. Then they should be taken out into nature, into the beautiful forests or mountains. They must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too feel harmony with all of life and their proper place in the midst of all things. moving to wise action. And this is really 
about balance, how I'd like to talk about wise action, about when to walk and when not to walk. So there's a, um, there's a parable um, in the Buddha's life that one of his uh, monastics, Venerable Sona, was meditating in, se- in seclusion and he was really ardent and, and probably striving a little too hard and uh, he was doing his walking meditation and the words were that he was doing his walking meditation until the skin of his souls were split and bleeding. And so, you know, he had all this doubt that kind of came up and he went to the the Buddha and um, uh, the Buddha said, um, uh, basically his teaching was, is really the middle way, is, is that he, he, um, he, the metaphor that he used was the lute and the strings on, on the musical instrument, that when it's too taut, when it's too tight, you can either snap the string or the sound is really dissonant. And when the lute's strings are too loose, you also cannot play that instrument. So the instrument is, is your body, is your life. And, and that balance of when to place the energy and maybe when not to. And I say this because the general invitations on walking practice are meant to apply to as many people as possible. But it doesn't necessarily match all of our experiences. So if you have limitations in your physical experience or your medical experience, really take care of yourself. Maybe the walking meditation is simply getting up, taking a step to the other chair and sitting down. Maybe it's a movement in the upper body. We have, um, at East Bay Meditation Center, we have uh, meditation that's done in some Thai temples that's only around the upper body. And we use that for our um, Sangha um, on Sundays that's called Every Body, Every Mind that is dedicated for people with different physical abilities. Jack uses this quote often from George Washington Carver. How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and strong, because someday in your life you will have been all of these. We, even though we may not be experiencing any impairment or limitation right now, we will. And does that limit your practice? My mom's 95. And when I think of myself, if I reach that age, I might not be teaching, but I really want to be practicing. Will my practice be limited by my physical restrictions? I hope not. Because mindfulness has no limits.
a story about walking and wise livelihood. I had mentioned a quote from Mildred Norman Ryder. Anybody know who she is? She um, was born in 1908 and died in 1981. And at the age of 44, she embarked on her livelihood. And, and uh, it was being a pilgrim for peace. And in the next 28 years, she walked over 25,000 miles without any money or organization behind her, calling for international as well as personal dis disarmament. She walked until she was given shelter and fasted until she was given nourishment. Sounds like a monastic. Her message was simple. Overcome evil with good, hatred with love, falsehood with truth. Start with the self, inner peace first, then peace will be attainable among individuals, communities, and nations. On January 1st, 1953, she adopted the name Peace Pilgrim and set out to walk the entire length of the country, leaving Pasadena, because she chose Pasadena because she wanted to set off walking ahead of the Rose Parade, where thousands of people could see her. In the midst of the Korean War, the McCarthy era, and the Cold War, she walked 5,000 miles from California to New York, carrying three petitions to end the war in Korea, establish the U.S. Peace Department, and a third petition urging world disarmament and the redirection of arms spending towards human needs funding. She delivered all three. And then she continued to cross this country seven times. Her message wasn't new. In fact, those who were Christian were sure that she was preaching Christ. Those who were Jewish felt that she represented the way of Yahweh. Buddhists, Baha'is, Jains were sure she spoke their religions. The Muslims were certain she preached the teachings of Islam. The Dalai Lama in 2000 commented, her motivation and activities are effective methods. Her commitment to propagate peace through actions without seeking money or fame is wonderful. We need such determined people everywhere, irrespective of culture, race, religion. It doesn't matter. Walking is not an ignoble or secondary or tertiary practice. And so now we go into the wisdom factors on wise intention. And just a reminder that it is said that our whole lives are balanced on this razor sharp sword of intention. That, that, that our life is determined by the intentions that we take. So sometimes we notice our intention hindsight, that we're not that aware of what our intentions are when, before an action begins. So the invitation of the walking practice is to practice 
noticing the intention before the action happens. Notice the intention to lift the foot before you lift it. Notice the intention to move the foot before you move it. Notice the intention to place the foot and then place it. You will practice and get more familiar with knowing the intention in the moment, closer and closer. And you know, how many of us have been in that situation that, that something has happened and the question rises, how did I get here? What just happened? I couldn't help it. Our intention really allows us to dispel this delusion, this unconsciousness. And the more concentrated we are that the walking helps, the more we can begin to notice the difference between intention and action. And intention leads to this, this place of, of, of wise understanding or wise view, which we'll be talking about later in the retreat. really seeing more clearly the nature of our experience. Walking can open up that landscape of our life beyond what we think it is. So one of my retreats in Cloud Mountain, um, uh, I can't even remember when it was, but uh, I was doing walking meditation and I came into practice an incredibly tortured soul. Uh, I was driven by both my, my sense of internalized oppression around being a gay man of color. I was being driven by external experiences of discrimination. Uh, I was, I, I was um, tortured in the sense that I, that I didn't have a purpose in life. And I, I say all of this because all of us suffer in our life. Your suffering may look different than mine, but that suffering that I experienced, you know, made me lose hope. It made me lose um, that meaning of being here. And I was w doing this walking meditation, and you know, this was in the back of my experience. And I said to myself, I cannot figure why I, why I'm here. I have no meaning in my life. And so I'm just going to figure out what the meaning of this redwood tree is. And so if, you know, maybe that will help me figure out the meaning of why I'm here. And so that was my walking meditation, turning away from the tree, going towards the tree, focusing on the fact that it was the home of these animals, that it, that it was the, the purpose of this tree was to discharge oxygen so that other beings could live. The, um, the, the man-made components of this tree for shelter and, and um, uh, paper and, and all of the... And I began to realize 
I could never figure out the real purpose of this being. I could not, you know, the, the list would be infinite. And in that moment, the need for me to have meaning or purpose fell away. And it's something that I was so attached to. And I'm just verbally describing an internal experience that actually has no words. But I actually haven't needed that purpose ever since. And in that way, I've never been as tortured ever since. There was that moment of freedom that, that has been internalized for me. One last encouragement for walking. Walking is um, the vehicle of a spiritual pilgrimage. And the Buddhist pilgrimage, the, the, the pilgrimage to the holy sites, um, is usually um, at minimum Lumbini, where the Buddha was born, Bodhgaya, the place of his enlightenment, Sarnath, where he delivered his first teaching, and Kushnagar, where he um, attained Parinibbana, his passing. And so, um, you know, it's, a, it's a quite a profound experience to go on pilgrimage. When John and I were talking, he reminded me of, of um, this Chinese pilgrim in the seventh century, Xuanzang, who um, at a very young age ordained, and in his mid-twenties, um, he undertook a 17-year pilgrimage to the holy sites from central China, in which he had to um, uh, contradict an imperial decree that there would be no foreign travel, sort of go under the radar, through the Gobi Desert, into Samarkand, down Central Asia, through uh, what's now Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, he traveled in, in 17 years over 13,000 miles on, on foot. He had that, and he did that to recover the original teachings that had been lost that the scriptures in China at that time, it was just beginning to, um, uh, uh, the practice was just coming into the historical consciousness of that culture. And there were many scriptures that were not available. And yet, even in the gaps of, of the Buddha's teachings, there was such tremendous faith and confidence in this practice, that he would spend 17 years walking 13,000 miles to recover these texts. He had a walking practice. And ultimately, what I'd like to suggest is that pilgrimage is not about the places we visit. It's about the life we live. It's not so much about how faith and confidence motivates a pilgrimage, but
but how do faith and confidence motivate your life, your practice? Because the pilgrimage is right here and right now. Each time you sit, you're visiting a holy site. Each time you go walking, that is a place of sacred activity. Pilgrimage really represents that yearning, that aspiration of the heart towards freedom. And it happens one step at a time. It's incremental. Dr. Martin Luther King writes, take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step and then the next. So this is the journey that we're on. This is, this is the pilgrimage. This is the walk towards freedom. You know, one of the classic Chinese aphorisms is, is a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. But I would offer the converse, that within each step is a thousand journeys. And I hope that during this month of practice in your walking meditations, you're able to really experience those journeys.